John Randall is the proprietor of the Whittington Press. That's correct, with my wife. She's an important part of the business. She keeps it profitable, does she? Yeah, she doesn't like printing, but that's very good because she leaves all that stuff to me. She deals with all the customer relations bit, which she can do from home. And those are all our customers personally. And home is? Herefordshire, which is about an hour from the press towards Wales from here. Right. The west. Yeah, we've just come from uh, Hay on Y. Yes, well, we're not far from there. We're a bit yeah. north of that. Welcome to the Bibliophile. Thank you. I'd like to get a bit of a history of the Whittington Press and perhaps what more people may be familiar with, your magnificent publication, Matrix or Matrix. The press, I suppose, grew from a day at school when I was 14 and I wandered into the press there, which was... a purely out-of-class activity. And I suppose I just fell completely in love straight away with the, the cases of Castle and Tye and the uh, Albion presses and the sheets of handmade paper. The smell, the, just the whole concept? I mean, what was I it think then? it was the concept of... I think I've always been quite keen on reading uh, from a child. And um, it was the whole concept of suddenly putting type together and making words... Mm. On the, in this rather fascinating, archaic and slow way and impressing the castle and type into damped handmade paper on an 1830 hand press. It just sort of got me and I I sort of knew that's all I ever really wanted to do from, from that age. So you can really date the press right back, I suppose, to, to, to that moment. And it, that was nineteen fifty six or something something around that. I was born that, that year. <laughs> right. Well, maybe I was too in a way that I discovered yes. printing. I've, I've always had this great love of printing uh, and still do. I mean, you know, it's never waned with me. Mm. And I do. I've done it every day of my uh, life, virtually. That's a gift, isn't it, really? I don't know what it is. I, what I like about it is that you see with your eyes and your see comes out in your hands, your handiwork. So it's a, it's a sort of direct process of working visually and manually all at the same time. There's no design process, separate design process. That's what I love about this. Uh, the whole thing is one unit. I mean, I went into commercial publishing because I realised that that's how I'd be able to enjoy doing typography and so on. So, you know, my 20s, I was mostly working for commercial publishers. But there, of course, you sat in the publisher's office and you did a, a design on a piece of tissue paper and you um, marked it all up for the printer, then went off to the printer. Um, what you got back, you know, may or may not relate to what to what you actually had in mind. So... Always at the back of my mind, I thought, well, and if I had my own press, I wouldn't have to go through this stage of actually designing the thing. It would come straight out of the mind, through the fingers, into the setting stick. Yeah. And I think that is the great, great attraction of this thing. You, one might do a, a quick rough on a literally the back of an envelope, but really it's in your mind and it comes straight out and into the setting stick, onto the press and into a proof, and then you can do a little bit of fiddling around with the proof but that is the great joy of this business the satisfaction of being able to translate an idea into reality absolutely right I mean I I think that this is the huge attraction of the small workshop whether it's printer potter 
weaving, whatever it is, it's, this is what attracts people to it. And it has mm. to be done on a fairly small scale so that you keep complete control over everything. Not, not to delegate anything, really, is to do, it, to do it all yourself. Which is, in effect, the definition of a private press anyway, isn't well, it? I suppose that's right. That's what, that's what makes it private. But the critical thing here, really, is the choice of material. And I think that has, is what has enabled us to, to keep going. How do you mean? Well, in that I would say any fool can print. I mean, if, if you take enough trouble, you've got decent type, good paper, and an accurate, a big, heavy press. There's no excuse that you shouldn't print as well as Aldous or William Morris or whoever you like. Charles Ricketts. Absolutely. There's no excuse for not doing it if you take enough time and trouble to do it. The thing is about keeping a little operation like this going is that you've got to choose material that people are going to buy at the end of the day in the form of a book and probably at a slightly higher price than they expect to get in the local bookshop. So by material, you don't actually mean physical material. I mean you the mean literary material. The content. Uh, absolutely. And in fact, our first book was called A Boy at the Hogarth Press, which we published in 1972. That took us a year. That's, that was before I left my job. So we just had weekends, my wife and I. We produced this book, 500 copies. So I think it was about 80 pages took us a year of weekends on a Colombian hand press and everything hand set. So it was, it was a bit of a toil and a sweat at the time, but it was nicely illustrated. It was by Richard Kennedy, and it was all about his time working for Lennon and Virginia Woolf at the Hogarth Press. So it's quite appropriate, isn't it? Uh, that's right. Well, he was an old friend of mine, and he used to um, reminisce on to me in the pub. Um, he was <laughs> one of our illustrators when I worked in publishing, mm. and he would would intrigue me with these stories of working for Leonard and Virginia and so on. So I said, well, you must get it onto paper. So to cut a very long story short, he eventually did. We published it. Uh, and it was really the private press printer's dream. We sold a whole lot straight off. And then Penguins came along and did an edition of 40,000 copies on top of that. That really taught, taught me a sharp lesson that if you come along with something that people really want to read, then they will buy it. We had one or two others, not, not quite as dramatic as that, some bestsellers early on. Bestseller and private press just seems to be like chalk and cheese. They don't mix. But in our case, fortunately, somebody must have been spying down on us. It did work, and that gave us the confidence me to stop work and much as I enjoyed working in publishing as I learnt an awful lot it was my university really uh, and start the press as a full-time business which we did I think in about 1974 publishing uh, and printing our own books ever since then uh, up to this time we, I think we've done about 200 plus books I saw a copy of the Kennedy book at uh, Bertram Rotus oh yes yes shop in London a couple of days ago and I think they had 200 pounds on it Yes, that's quite a reasonable price. Yeah. I mean, I think uh, when we published it, it was £5, but I, I think 200 is a very reasonable price for that now. But you, you mentioned Matrix, which, in a way, it's been our financial stability, really, because running a private press is a financial nightmare, as anybody will say. But because what you'll never get back with the, the hours that you've put into it. It's not so much that as you're always spending money up front on everything. You must never skimp on anything is golden rule number one. Always go for the most, more expensive alternative. 
Um, like paper, for example. Absolutely. Always use the most expensive paper, and you mustn't be afraid of waste. And what is the most expensive paper? We use a lot of German mold-made, actually. We, we don't use a lot of hand-made, simply because I don't like it very much. Why not? Because it's sort of inconsistent. Well, English handmade, well, there's not much of it now, but it, it's like printing on sheets of porridge. <laughs> it's, not, it's just... Well, it's the it, may look, it may look and feel nice, but... It's all right, it's right. Yeah. I, I don't particularly like the result that handmade gives, but the Germans have a marvellous eye for a sheet of paper. It has a very slight sheen on it, and so it prints incredibly accurately without being shiny, if you know what I mean. It's, it's, it's a very subtle sheen on it. There's a firm in uh, northern Germany called Zirkel, and we use a tremendous amount of their papers, mm. and always have done, and they are really marvellous. What do they do to make it so good? Uh, I don't know. I wish I knew. I've never been there. I don't ask any questions. I just They, ha they have a, uh, an agent in London who stocks it very efficiently, uh, so we can get it you know, within a couple of days, and it's very reasonably priced. And so we, we do use a tremendous amount of that. The only handmade paper we've used recently, actually, has come from a mill in Czechoslovakia. And that is a beautiful paper called Losin, L-O-S-I-N. And I'd like, I'd like to use that again, actually, but we haven't used it for a year or two. But nothing out of England or the States uh, gets you too excited then? No, I'd say not. No, America's too far away, and I think the, the, co the transport costs will be too great. So, in other words, there may be some stuff there, but... Uh, there may be. I'm not actually sure. I mean, okay. uh, I think American printers obviously use their own paper. We use a little bit of French. Arch, is it? Yes, a little bit of Arch. We used to use a lot of it uh, at one time, but really the German is my favourite, and the Italians produce some delicious papers, too. You know, there's always the right paper for the job. One must use what is right for the job and, and never skimp on that. And we never do. What do you mean by what's right for the job? Well, for example, if you're, we print a lot of wood engravings. This is where the artist engraves directly onto a piece of engraved boxwood and we then print. This has become a little bit of a speciality for us just because I love wood engravings so much. The woodcut goes with the grain, right? And the wood engraving goes That's on the right. There's a difference. Uh, there's a difference between a wood engraving where the artist engraves the line, a white line out of a black solid, if you like, and the cut, where you, where, like a line of cut, where you cut away the bits that you don't want to print, and that side grain. But wood engraving is a particularly English medium it's a kind of masochism that seems to appeal to the to the English psyche. Really, I don't think it's an exaggeration to say that the best engravers in the world are actually English, I think. I'm probably prejudiced, but mm -hmm. there's some very fine American engravers as well, actually. It's really caught on there recently. And what makes them so good? What, the Americans? No, the British. Oh, the British. I don't know. It's a terribly difficult and demanding medium. Is it an eye for detail or a, a perfectionist gene? Or I don't know. It seems to suit our temperament and our climate. I just don't know. It's hard to say. But the English engravers who do countryside scenes, mm. which particularly appeal to us... Buick was really Buick. the, the yeah. grandfather of the thing. Yes, he's got it started off as an art medium. But it had a huge renaissance at the beginning of the um, 20th century. Gordon Craig, Nicholson... Gibbings, Eric Gill, of course, the, the whole um, bunch of giants at that time. 
who started off the Society Wood Engravers. And they also taught, of course, too. Exactly. Yeah. Yes, yeah. yes, exactly. They passed it on. And it's flourished immensely. We are, we're very fortunate. We have one of the, the best wood engravers, English wood engravers, working here. She came to work as compositor. What's her name? Uh, Miriam McGregor. We've done a lot of books with her wood engravings. Uh, and, it's, of course, it's marvellous having her on the premises, virtually, because we work together and print the books more or less together and so they really are just as she wants them and hopefully just as I want them as well we've done some very nice books with her but we've done a lot of books with other with other engravers as well anyway coming back to your original point for, for wood engravings you do need a paper with a very sensitive sheen on it to pick up every detail in the engraving sorry to be anal here but can you define sheen uh, sheen is it's not a shine I think how, how they make it is they put a sheet of paper through steel rollers, revolve, very fast revolving steel rollers. So it just gives that a sort of smoothness to the sheet without giving it a shine. And, and, and uh, that enables it to, uh, to pick up the ink and in a way. And that will enable it to give a very faithful reproduction to the wood engraving. Yes, it's, paper is just so important. It's, it, can, it makes or breaks a book, I think. The way the page turns the way the whole book sort of looks quite apart from the quality of the printing inside it I think I say, I would say paper is more important than the choice of typeface people get terribly carried away with the choice of typeface I don't think choice of typeface at all is all that important actually yeah I mean when you think of it you, you do want the leaves of, of the book to, to open up and oh, stay absolutely. put and, yes, and I, not I think interfere with the reading experience well I think one of the things I dislike most of all is, is what I call the porcupine effect where you open a book and they all bristle up there. They, they should lie gently down and, and, and wait to be read. My favourite typeface is Kasler, and we do tend to use that quite a lot. In fact, our son's called Kasler, and so I must be quite fond of it. And uh, Kasler was the great English typefounder of the 18th century. So it was Gill's favourite face as well. Who was responsible for sort of bringing it back into fashion? It had a great comeback... The Chiswick Press, I think, were uh, were quite responsible for that at the uh, end of the 19th century, perhaps. It, it is the most wa- wonderful sort of universal face. We we have a, a, a good range of it in all the different sizes. I, I, I wouldn't say we use it exclusively, far from it. We certainly use it in our annual journal, Matrix, which you were asking me about. The, the first issue came out in 1981, really because I had three or four articles... Well, they weren't articles. They they were three or four small books on on different subjects. But they wouldn't make a book. I I couldn't see them as making an individual book. But they were really worth publishing. One one of them was a diary of one of the pressmen at the Shakespeare Head Press in the early 20s. Terribly interesting historical document. But it wasn't really a publishing proposition, to be honest. And I had a few other things, and it suddenly occurred to me one day, if we put them all together in a journal of some kind, that might make it a viable publishing possibility. Almost like an anthology. Exactly. So I thought, well, you know, we'll call it the Whittington Journal, or something. I thought it was a bit dull. And it suddenly occurred to me, well, Matrix, that that is the beginning of the type making process. It's the the mould into which the lead is poured to make the letter. So we called it Matrix, and also I could see the masthead in my mind's eye. Castle has a beautiful decorative M, so I could see that M up there an inch high. And uh, so we published the first one in 1981, 
and I think it was, went for about £10. I mean, published it rather nervously. Well, the whole lot went straight away. And again, to cut a very long story short, if you get one for much under £1,000 today, then you're not doing too badly. Maybe they've fallen back a bit. And it got bigger and bigger as time went on. The first mm-hmm. one was about 60 or 70 pages. How often um, do they come out then? Is it uh, Yes, we've been very good. We've, except for the last two years, we've slipped a bit because we had various other things going on. But we, we did bring it out for the first 28 years, 27 years, absolutely bang on time. It used to come out for Christmas every year, pretty much. It grew and grew. It, grew, it went up to nearly a 1,000, and the number of pages, I think, crept up to about 250 on occasion. And who, who goes, I mean, obviously bibliophiles, but uh, uh, would it be fellow fine printers? It's a sort of a mixture. We have a lot of institutional sales, particularly in America. Mm. In fact, nearly half the copies go to North America, Canada mm. and America. Is that because there's been a sort of a renaissance in letterpress printing? Well, Americans have a tremendous interest in, in fine printing. Mm. I mean, it all goes with the freedom of speech thing, doesn't it? That's my theory, anyway. <laughs> the Magna Carta, I guess. Well, exactly. Yeah, well, of course, they get it all from us, don't they? But <laughs> I think there is a, a strong thing in America that any man can go and buy a fine type, have a press, and print what he wants. I think it goes fairly deeply into that a psyche of yeah. uh, freedom of uh, action and choice. And, of course, Benjamin Franklin was a printer. Absolutely. So. The um, Constitution was printed in Caslin. I was looking at one in the Morgan Library the other day. Mm. So we do have a very long and strong connection with Americans and, and fine printing. Yeah. We, we coalesce at that level very, very strongly. So Matrix goes to um, institutions, collectors, in, individual collectors. Uh, some go to bookshops. Um, and its circulation has held up incredibly well over the years. I mean, it probably peaked at about 900 or 950, I would say, and it's probably levelled out at about 750. That's fine. That makes it very viable for us, and it gives the press what's so critical is that it gives the press a regular income because it sells for £100 a copy, which is like $160 or thereabouts. And so it's a big part of our income. What is also good is that when sets come up on the second-hand market, they go for £4,000 or thereabouts. If you want to buy a copy of number one, I mean, it, it's completely out of kilter, really, then you probably have to pay between 500 and £1,000. Now, why would these be so uh, collectible, do you think? Well, I don't know. I mean, I'm just the, the editor, the publisher, and the printer, but... And the founder. <laughs> Yes, and I love doing it. I mean, I I always say if somebody else has invented Matrix, I wouldn't bother to print it. I can subscribe to their edition of it. But there was a nice thing on the web the other day of a a very notable American book seller that said it's by far the best journal of 20th century fine printing, including even the Fleuron, the seven volumes of the Fleuron in the 1920s. So, you know, there it is. I mean, I think it's pretty good. You know, if the, the market is telling you this, then... Well, the great... I think the important thing is to include in journals, and I subscribe to a lot of journals, and frankly, I don't even bother to open most of them, but you've got to get the reader to open the thing and go around in a kind of trance 
until he's got the end of it. In other words, he must mm-hmm. be able to put it down. You've got to yeah. grab him. And he also has to anticipate it with relish. Absolutely. What, what yeah. I really love is when printers ring me up and say, oh, thanks, I got my coffee today. It's ruined the whole day. And <laughs> that, that really pleases me. There's a common theme to what you've been saying, and that is you have a really good eye for what people want to read. Yes, I mean, I love reading, and I think I have a low boredom threshold, actually, because I think if the writer is expecting the reader to make an enormous effort, I think, why should I be bothered? You know, you're the writer, I bought the thing, you've got to entertain me. And I think, you know, you've got to entertain the reader, or you can't expect him to go buying the book. So how do you entertain the reader, then? Everything that goes into Matrix, I don't put anything in that I don't feel really personally and genuinely enthusiastic about. I never put anything in because... It's got a well-known author or a very highly regarded academic author. In fact, I rather tend to avoid those if I can help it. Anybody can actually go and find an academic who can write about something or other. And uh, and they're not always the best in that Mm. respect. What is difficult and what is really marvellous when you find it is to find somebody who writes with passion uh, and a real knowledge of the subject are not trying to show off their erudition and those are the ones that I really love they're the ones that you know really engage the reader and I think that's over the years actually is what has made Matrix uh, what it is so it's not ostentatious it's just uh, entertaining and, and full of fun that's what I like to think but but on the other hand is dead accurate I'm actually quite fussy about that in terms of fact well I am a printer so I ought to know the facts after all and if there's anything that I'm not sure about I'll Mm -hmm. go and just check on it and find out (laughs) and I do like things to have references and without overdoing the footnotes I don't like bald statements I like them to be backed up because when I read something and somebody makes a bald statement I like to think where do you get that from I wonder how interesting not that I'm doubting him I'm just intrigued to know where that bit of information comes from so I hope that over the years Matrix can be relied on as a source of information for future generations of um, fine printing and also reflective of what's going on in the field I hope so well I hope so I mean I think it's a responsibility when you put something into print even in these days of the web and, and so on and so forth I think you really have a real responsibility to make us as accurate as you possibly can. Who are some of these writers that have uh, most impressed you? Well, over the years we've had a few who have been regular, absolutely regular contributors to Matrix and given it a kind of a backbone, as you might say. Well, three straight off the top of my head. uh, uh, Roderick Cave, who wrote the definitive history of the, of the private press back in, what, in the 60s, I suppose, wasn't it? And Rod is a man of enormous and wide-ranging interests and huge enthusiasms, plus being very, very thorough and accurate. But he has an academic background. I mean, he's non- unusual in being an academic with a huge sense of enthusiasm as well and mm-hmm. writes very fluently and well. Then there was John Dreyfus, who died a few years ago. He did the nonsense. That's right, he did the non-such bibliography. A man of immense erudition, and yet who wrote beautifully, fluently, with lots of enthusiasm. But I mean, if anybody ever had a query about any fact to do with the history of printing, 
particularly the characters of the 20th century, most of whom he knew personally, uh, then you'd go and ask John. Mm. Uh, and he was fantastic. Then, of course, Sebastian Carter, who ran the Rampant Lions Press with his father Will, uh, probably the most famous of all the English private presses, almost certainly. He not only be, is a superb printer himself, as was his father, is, is a very good typographic historian. He has written a lot for us. So he, he wrote a very good book on called 20th Century Type Designers, didn't he? Yes, 20th Century Type Design. In particular, he edited over a series of three issues, uh, the correspondence between Van Crimpen and Stanley Morrison which was a huge task on his part. And um, it really could have been a book quite easily, but he very generously let us publish it as part of Matrix. They do it uh, because they love doing it, and they do I it for free, so. is that right? Yes, pretty much, yes, yes. Nobody does it for, for the money, I don't think. And well, th that's the other thing about Matrix, it really doesn't go back pre-1900. I'm not much interested in history. As far as I'm concerned, history can look after itself. The re the, a major reason for starting Matrix was to record certain events and personalities while they were either still alive or within recent living memory. And that really was the, was the reason for getting it going. To so documenting what was going mm, on. Uh, yeah, I'm very time. keen to document mm. things because Matrix contains an awful lot of information that if it wasn't in Matrix, it would have disappeared. You see, as people like John Dreyfus die, he takes a fantastic amount of information with him. Mm. Although he did write quite a lot in his lifetime, I feel, I feel very strongly that that needs to be documented for, for the future, really. And so I hope we've helped, helped to do that a bit. Your favourites, do you have particular, uh, first of all, editions of Matrix that, for whatever reason, uh, you hold particularly close to your heart? And the same same question as it pertains to the various books that you've published. Uh, Matrix is so varied, actually, that you know, it's been going nearly 30 years now, and I can often pick up an issue and think, um, I wonder what that, what's so interesting about that one and get quite engrossed in it. <laughs> so there was only one issue that we ever concentrated on one theme, and that was number eight. And I was very taken up with Robert Gibbons at that time, the wood engraver and, uh, and, and owner at one time of the Golden Cockrell Press. The 20s, right? Yeah, in the 20s, yeah. that's right. And it was, the, it was the golden period of the Golden Cockrell mm. Press, I think mm. most people would agree with that. Rod Cave wrote a marvellous history of it, and I, I think he would agree with that. And I knew Gibbings, uh, his close friend Patience Empson, who was much younger than him. I mean, he'd been dead some years, but they lived together um, for the last years of his life and travelled a lot together, sailed the seas. She was a lovely lady, and she gave me an awful lot of material that she had. Well, gave it to me, but allowed me to use it. Photographs, engravings, diaries, unpublished material that he'd written. And so we did have one issue, which really was a Gibbings issue, and that was number eight. But that's the only one which has sort of had a theme to it, um, because I think it's very dangerous to publish a, a journal with a theme, because what happens to all the poor people that are not, not interested in that particular theme? So I think with Matrix, we've always tried to keep the interest fairly Catholic and universal, 
uh, so there's, there's something um, for everybody in it. So in answer, sorry, a rather long, long answer to your short question. Uh, no, I don't think I do have a favourite one. As for our books, I don't know. I, well, put, to put the question the other way around, there are some I really don't ever want to see again, I have to admit that. <laughs> and, um, but yes, of course I have favourite. I think Boy the Hogarth Press, whenever I reread that book, it makes me laugh again. Yeah. It's just so funny. One of the stories has him going off to pick up something at the post office and he has a fling with a tart in the, in the park. Oh, that's right, mm-hmm. yes, yes, he does. Yes, that's rather a sad sequence. I don't think it worked out frightfully well. Um, <laughs> but it, he, was such a, he was such a lovely man. I was yeah. so fond of him, and I learned so much from him. And, uh, I mean, as far as printers are concerned, uh, I think my, my favourite 20th century printer, well, my favourite printer, is Hilary Pepler, who worked uh, with Eric Gill at the St. Dominic's Press. In fact, I think that's how I inherit my love of Caslam because Gill was very keen on Caslam. He wrote a letter to that effect, which we printed as a large broadside, uh, which we have stuck up on, on the wall of the press here. Pepler went to work for Gill at St. Dominic's Press. Um, as not really went for Gill, but he was part of the community and was the printer there. And so he inherited his love of Caslam from Gill. When my school press started before the war, uh, one of the young teachers was sent down to St. Dominic's Press to learn the rudiments of letterpress printing to pass it on to the boys. He obviously got an affection for Caslin while he was there. Uh, so the, the press was stocked with Caslin, I suppose, in the 40s when he came back. 10, 15 years later, when I was there, I found Caslin there. So I like to think of my love of Caslin actually coming from Gill and Pepler. And Pepler's books are, my, I think, my favourite private press books of the 20th century, I would say. They're done with a certain carelessness. They're rather badly printed. And he, he was a careless man. But there's a certain joie de vivre about them, and an enjoyment and a fun uh, that I think I, I love. And these are the... This is St. Dominic's Press, St. Which, Dominic's Press, which really flourished in the Ditchling community, I suppose the 20s and 30s, yes, okay. yes, and they're, they're wonderful little things, nothing much in themselves, but I don't know, they have a magic to me, mm. which, which a lot of the more serious private presses seem to slightly miss out on. They're what, they're striving too hard for perfection, you'd say? I think sometimes... Um, I, I think actually the most important element of a book at the end of the day is the words inside it. If that's right, then everything else comes right. To put um, uninspiring words into a, a glorious format... Yeah, it just doesn't is, match, does it? I, <laughs> I, I think it's slightly the wrong way around. Too I mean, grandiose. And I, the, I think so. I, yeah. I, I, I'd rather see a really inspired typescript come off a Xerox machine in a way... I think that would be my order of priorities. Hmm. Which sort of undermines everything that we've been talking about, doesn't it? In a way. I know, I can't. My only justification for having spent all these years doing what I do, I can't justify it. I do try to work out, why why do I do it, you know, really? Hmm. And the only justification I can come up with is that I really, really love doing it. And that I can't, I can't think of a day. I can't think of a day without it, really. 
Uh, I, I get you know, withdrawal symptoms if I can't touch, type, and smell ink and touch a press. Uh, I'm afraid that's the only justification I can offer, and it's a pretty pathetic one. <laughs> well, just final question. The motivation behind Matrix was to document uh, what was going on and is going on in, in this field. So I'm documenting your thoughts about your own work and your Absolutely. own experience. So what, what do you want to leave behind? What messages do you have? What have you learned that you can pass on to people that may listen to this in the future? Well, well I, I don't really have a, a, a sort of lifestyle agenda philosophy that I can pass on to anybody. All, all I can say is go and look at the books. And we have published two volumes of, of bibliography where I have written my notes about each book, the things that went wrong or the things that sort of stood out in my mind that's all I, I really want to leave behind but um, the, the main thing is to look at the books I think and hopefully read them um, and enjoy them at the same time uh, look at your books I think so yes yes I think that's th that's all I can leave behind really are the books um, though I, I have written a certain amount about printing and typography but I always feel that when people write an awful lot about printing and typography, my feeling is, go and get a setting stick, buy some type, and go and do it. <laughs> Instead of writing <laughs> about it. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, so, I don't want to be hard on people who write about it, but but my, my affection is for the doers, I think. And uh, that's why I love Pepler so much. I don't think he ever wrote much about it, but um, he certainly did it with all his energy and love, and um, I rather like that attitude. Great. Well, thank you for uh, sharing your uh, thoughts and wisdom and helping us to document uh, what you've been up to over the last 30-odd uh, years. Well, thank you for coming along. <laughs> I'd be speaking to uh, John Randall, who is the proprietor of Whittington Press and founder of the annual journal Matrix. Thanks again. Thank you.